Howdy and welcome to episode 5 of For the Greater Defense with retired Colonel Matt Gill. On this episode, we will be discussing his deployment to Afghanistan with 1st Cavalry. Thank you for joining us again, Colonel Gill. Howdy. It's great to be back. So in the last episode, we ended off talking about your first month in Afghanistan uh, after moving into the 1st Cav Division back into the conventional army. So can you just tell us a little bit about what was your first challenge uh, when you were deployed to Afghanistan with 1st Cavalry? Yes, I think the the hardest part in the beginning of our that deployment was we were faced with elections there in Kandahar, and it was localized elections, um, really kind of out of my bailiwick. That's not that's not really me. Uh, I spent most of the war hunting down people, uh, and in this case, uh, our mission was to secure Kandahar, make sure that the Afghans could have a free and fair elections, and and we and we were able to carry that out with a minimal amount of violence and then after that we received the order to start to retrograde regional command south i'd never done that before and it was kind of counterintuitive because you know invasions are different and you're actually building up your own capacity uh, military capacity securing an environment and then stabilizing it in this case we're being asked to retrograde all the bases uh, in the south, kind of coalesce right there on Kandahar Airfield. The Marines were going to come out of Helmand Province and, and fly out of Kandahar on their way home. And and so it was just a little bit different of a mission. And how, how do you give up intel collection space that you've owned for years and expect to still have the same intelligence view? Will you still have humans as in human intelligence collection capability. We were always going to have ISR over it. Uh, but that was the biggest challenge was we're, we were caught in, in the quandary of, are we giving the Taliban back space and will the Afghans be able to continue to secure it? And I think that was really the biggest challenge we had uh, in that deployment. And as you dealt with that issue, what were the ways that you still continued to collect intelligence or work around the limited space that you had? Well, I think we finally had to admit to ourselves that, okay, this is the Afghans' country. This is theirs to secure, theirs to defend. We'd given them, you know, 15 years of training material and money by that point in time. And I just had to look at my counterparts in the Afghan National Army and say, okay, hey, this is it. This is yours. We're here. We're going to help you. But it'll be at a much more limited capacity. And we were going to be able to see whether the fruits of 15 years of labor was going to pay out. Luckily for me, in that small amount of time that we had left over there in Kandahar, I think the uh, the Afghan intelligence apparatus did a really good job. We were buttressed by an individual named Abdul Razak. Uh, he was up, he was often called the Robin Hood of Kandahar Province. Uh, he, he had his uh, corruption, uh, and but he also had his goodness about him, and uh, and we were able to continue to help him. So we, I think. When we let go of some of that intel terrain and let the Afghans have it, I actually think that was really the first opportunity that the Afghans had to grow. And then did you see the fruits of your labor in terms of building the capabilities of the Afghan National Army and the intelligence apparatus there? So that's going to be a little bit of a schizophrenic answer. I say yes uh, in, the, in the fact that I had some really good Afghan partners, both in Afghan soft and Afghan intel, uh, and, and they were ready. They were ready, and they wanted the challenge. But I think U.S. policy at that point in time, maybe the, the, the retrograde uh, was a little too abrupt, and, and maybe there was some policy at some point in time that was essentially going, okay, hey, we've got a, 
retrograde everybody back to Kandahar, and it happened just so quickly that that I think we we were not buying space and time from an Intel perspective really all that well. So as your time in Afghanistan came to a close, what leadership lessons did you learn during the deployment? Oh, this is the the first real time that, that I truly understood that everybody has value to include uh, negative value. Right? Well, some people are have negative value, and that is value in amongst itself. But I, I learned to really enjoy the look on my young soldiers' faces when they succeeded. And I had lost that for years because, you know, in special operations, you're a quadruple volunteer. Everybody's kind of medium to senior rank, and, you know, they're already high performers, and you're just trying to keep up with them. But when you get back down in the conventional army, you are really working with 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds. And and I remember as we flew in to that deployment, and, and, and I was in double-digit deployments, most of my young soldiers, this was their first. And as we took off out of Germany and you were coming into the Afghan airspace, the lights go out uh, for safety reasons for the aircraft. Uh, but then when you get over on top of Kandahar, you do what's called a death spiral, right? And and that is where the pilot puts it in a really steep G dive, and you're just turning and turning and turning. And the the red light in the back of the aircraft gives off this really eerie glow. Uh, and I remember thinking, just keep your face straight, no facial expressions. And I picked up a book and pretended to read it to act like everything was normal although we were all scared going into another deployment. But I didn't want those young soldiers to see the old man vulnerable, right? And by the end of that deployment, all those 19-year-olds were very experienced. Uh, They were very accomplished. And I'd go to war with them again any day. Can you share a little bit about what first words you gave to your uh, your young soldiers or how did you help them transition into their first deployment in the weeks leading up to the deployment and then the first few weeks of the deployment? Lots of training, lots of training, lots of map work, lots of basic soldier skills, uh, what we call battle tasks back then, uh, lots and lots of training. Um, I, I got this from an old boss of mine from one of my units was you train for your hardest day in combat, not your easiest day. And so the training we put them forward, I think that said enough. I didn't have to give some, you know, Hoosier speech with a tape measure and, hey, the, you know, they're just like you or, a, you know, a big motivational speech. That's really not me uh, or my style of leadership. And I think they just knew. And at, after we got on that plane, it was lead by example. So why is the acronym NSTR or nothing significant to report so meaningful to your last deployment to Afghanistan? Yeah, so nothing significant to report is something you don't see very often in the intelligence community, and and that's unfortunate. But really, you're telling your boss or the customer that in the last 24 hours, um, not much happened that was really all that significant that would impact you, and the enemy really didn't do just a whole lot in the last 24 hours. There was nothing significant that they did for me to bring to your attention as the decision maker. Uh, we were going into October, and we had just come out of a series of really ugly battles, ugly fights, and and so we were all kind of tired, and but we were still ready to hook and jab. And I walked into the morning meeting, which was my opportunity to tell the the commanding general and the staff and all the other units, you know, what what, what was the latest of intel, what was the Taliban doing, Al Qaeda, and and you know the Haqqani network. 
in a when my young lieutenant, uh, young lieutenant Lisa Biancolana, uh, she met me at five o'clock in the morning with the analytic team, and they, she gave me the card, and and I remember going, that can't be true, and she said, sir, nothing happened, and so I'm okay. Trusting my people, I went up to the meeting, and and I could just tell in the collective group and the command and staff that it was uh, that that people were were kind of in that post battle kind of days of, okay, here here comes Gill telling us more bad news that the enemy is going to attack us again, uh, and the CG said, well, two, what do you have? And I said, sir, I've got nothing significant to report, and uh, he just kind of looked at me thinking I was joking, then. Colonel uh, Steve Gillen, our chief of staff, he just kind of looks at me from the side, and and I said, "Sir, no, nothing significant to report today." And there was this audible sigh from the collective group, that and and I think the way I I describe it is that it was we had accomplished so much in six months. We had we had fought the Taliban, secured you know Kandahar for the elections. We had retrograded four bases. We had retrograded the Marines out of Helmand Province, and and that's a lot in a six month period of time. And then the Taliban wanted to attack, and they did uh, several times. And and so to, to to say nothing significant to report, I think you could uh, from my team, I couldn't have been more proud that in six months they had done so much work that there was nothing significant to report. Absolutely. And so towards the end of this year, as you're about to redeploy, uh, your commander calls you into his office and says that you have a new mission set. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about what that was like? Yeah, so we knew we were coming, going home um, and, and we were going to hand, you know, take the, the RC South into a, from a two-star headquarters to a one-star headquarters. And, uh, and, and the boss had uh, elected to bring me back with him with the, the majority of the staff. And he called me into his office and he said, hey, Gil, um, I need you to start thinking about this, but but we're going to get a mission change when we get back to Fort Hood. And, and I said, all right, sir, what, and what are we going to do? And uh, he said, we're going to take on the decisive action training environment, and we're going to shift back to heavy metal fighting. And it's, talk about a reverse culture shock uh, where, where we'd been essentially fighting counterinsurgencies and low-intensity conflict for, for at that point in time. 14 years uh, to, to be told, hey, we're going to go practice fighting major state-on-state state, uh, armies again. And, and he said, well, you just go figure it out uh, because after we get home from Afghanistan, we're going to the National Training Center in about two months. And so that was kind of another reverse culture shock. Hey, we just spent six months forward. Now we're going to go out to Death Valley for a month. But, you know, no, nobody goes to the circus to see a clown juggle one ball. And what resources did you go to immediately to help you get into the mindset to prepare for this new new fight? Well, I, I had to close out the fight, and so that was my mission. So we stayed concentrated on on the fight there in Afghanistan, uh, and then when we got on the plane and, and got home, I you know I took a couple of days off to 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 essentially you know see my family. And when I went straight back into work, well, what's easy with the army is we have doctrine. And I called a buddy of mine up in, at Fort Leavenworth uh, Training and Doctrine Command and said, hey, I, we just got assigned decisive action uh, training environment. Um, what can you do to help me out? And it was probably 15 minutes later. I, you know, I had a slew of email with a ton of resources that were out there that although we were focused on uh, counterinsurgency and low-intensity conflict, 
the army still existed to fight other nation states' armies. And so we were able to pivot really, really quickly. Can you explain a little bit more about what decisive action means for the army? Well, I think that's, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny thing to say is, is, you know, is, is any conflict with the army less decisive when somebody's shooting at you? I, I don't think so. But, it, you know, somebody got a, you know, got a bullet point on an evaluation for coming up with that. I don't know. But uh, it was really just a high intensity conflict, nation state on nation state, uh, exactly why the first cab was originally built. And can you uh, remind us what year this was? Oh, this was in 2015. So just after the uh, invasion of Crimea and um, things like that. So uh, did you see the shift in your career um, maybe prior to this? Uh, did you see kind of the the writing on the walls of the, that this might happen? You know, I, I think I was so heavily invested in the fight that I was in that, you know, st- I, I kind of knew that the Russians had gone into the Donbass and Luhansk and, and into Crimea. Uh, and I, I just vaguely remember, hey, yeah, that's right. They, they they went into Georgia and that didn't really work out too well for them. And uh, gosh, OK, what's going on? Well, wait a second. I need to stay focused on Afghanistan. But then it became uh, kind of a whirlwind. You know, we're going to go to North Korea. You know, oh, gosh, it's going to bubble up over here in Europe. And and Taiwan is always an issue. And so at one point in time, my G2 shop, uh, as I was kind of closing out my time at First Cab, um, I had my shop pointed in several different directions. We, we, We were focusing on North Korea. I had a uh, we had a brigade that was going to Europe, uh, and so we were focused on okay, what's going on in Russia? We actually had elements in the Sinai, and in Egypt, and we and we had a battalion guarding Gitmo, and so when you know the CG comes back from Afghanistan, commanding general, you know he he walks into five specific fights that he is now having to think about, which required me to arrange my intel apparatus around each of those fights as well and that closes out your time in first cab what was next for you yep so uh, as all things come you know you kind of graduate out of that command level job and that's when big army calls you and they and they kind of give you this uh, faux decision right they they come to you and say hey uh, what do you want to do next and they they somewhat mean that they're uh and i said well you know if, if, if you where do you think i need to go I want to go back to, you know, the special operations community. And I'd already gotten a phone call that said, hey, look, we're, we're going to bring you back. And so they gave me an, an assignment and they said, hey, we'd really like you to consider going to the Joint Multinational Readiness Training Center in Hohenfels, Germany. Uh, it's only going to be eight months, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Gale, don't worry, and, uh, but it'll be unaccompanied. Uh, but we'll get you back after the eight months. You're really just a gap filler. I said, yeah, I'm really not interested in that. What else do you have? And then uh, they said, well, we'll get back to you. And, and, and I said, OK. And uh, I got back to working. And about 10 minutes later, my phone rang. Um, and it was General Ashley, the Department of the Army G2, the senior intel officer. And and he essentially said, hey, Matt, how would you like to uh, go to Bavaria, which is where Hohenfels is? I said, sure. You know, I told the branch chief I'm really not interested in that. Um, I'd, I'd really like to get back to special operations. And he, he was very persuasive. He said, hey, how'd you like to go back to Afghanistan for a year? Or you can go uh, to Bavaria for eight months. And I said, sir, Bavaria sounds just fine. And that was it. And I had orders about a month later, and, and I was off to Germany. Well, that's where we'll leave it off for today. So thank you for joining us, and we'll pick up uh, going into Germany next week. Yeah, gig em. Gig em. Thank you. <laughs>